0: How would you like for somebody at StoryBrand to look at your website and give you feedback on things that you should change? Your opportunity is alive right now. If you register for the StoryBrand Marketing Workshop that takes place on September 22nd, you can get a free coaching call, but you have to register early. You have to actually register before August 22nd. If you register on August 22nd, you'll come to the StoryBrand Workshop, you'll clarify your message, we'll teach you to create a sales funnel, and then you can actually, after the workshop, Get on the phone with one of our coaches who can review your actual material and help you change it so it works better. It's a very small investment, and then you can make sure you did it absolutely right with that coaching call. Your opportunity to have that coaching call goes away on August 22nd. So before August 22nd, go to storybrand.com. Register for our live marketing workshop, attend the workshop, and then get that coaching call. It all goes away on August 22nd. Go to storybrand.com and register today. Storybrand.com. Welcome to the Building a Story Brand Podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business. I'm your host, Donald Miller. I'm joined with my co-host, Dr. J.J. Peterson. Hi, J.J. Hi, Don. Good to be back in the podcast studio. It is. It has been, we batched the last like 12 weeks, mm-hmm. and because we had a bunch <laughs> of courses to film, yes. which is exciting. We've yes. got new products coming out, yes. but you and I are, are rusty at this. Yeah, a little. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, today we've got Scott Miller on the podcast. He's, yes. he's with the... Stephen Covey and the organization out there, and he teaches management. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit about a number of things. One of the things is managing yourself. Mm. And this was interesting to me. Go on. Because we are filming a course Monday. Yep. On creating your guiding principles—that yep. is, your mission statement—we're not going to do core values. We're doing key characteristics, critical actions—it's a yeah. really cool. It's very fun. Yeah, it's, and it's based on all this sort of narrative philosophy from two thousand years. Based on everything we do is based on Aristotle's Poetics. Yeah. People are like, how'd you come <laughs> up with that? I'm like well, about twenty five hundred years ago. <laughs> but you know, it's really good stuff. But one of the things that Scott talks about is is being centered in your values. Yeah. And our course helps you do that, and stuff that Scott has written helps you do that. But I'm curious, have you ever sat down and said, These are my values? These are the things that I value? And the reason I ask is because he talks about it being a filter for how you will respond in different situations.
1: I have. I've actually gone through, you know, different even workshops to right. do it. Um, and we've done it as a team. And some of the stuff that we did as a team came out of some things I did personally. The way that I really phrase it and kind of continue looking at f- for myself is I say, 20 years from now, if somebody's look we're at a reunion of all the people I'm with in this moment, whatever it is, like if it's work or if I'm on a trip with people, 20 years from now we're in a reunion. What are they going to look back and say about me about that moment? Yeah. And what I want them to say becomes ultimately my values that I start to try to live out with. So I try to list two or three things that guide the way that I act in that moment, yeah. in that group of people. Now, do I always live by that? <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> do I always write them down? No. But that that's something that I really actually strive to do. I try to say, what do I want to be known for 20 years from now? And yeah. how do I live my life in a way this moment? What are the... Two or three keywords, not more than that, two or three keywords that drive how I live this moment so that 20 years from now I can be recognized for What what
0: are a couple of the keywords?
1: One of the things we've talked about before is relentless. Yeah. Right? That, like, I want want somebody to look back. If you
0: get knocked down, you're going to get back up. Yeah,
1: that they would look at me and they would say, man, even in all the stuff that he was going through, he was relentless through that.
0: And you are that in spades. You have- not zero victim mentality, but way <laughs> less mentality than I do. <laughs> I do. I should clarify that, but you, it, but that is an aspect of being relentless, yeah. Right, like because yeah. victim bait is everywhere. Yeah,
1: the new thing that right now, to be very honest, that you and I have both been in a situation recently where we've had a lot of difficulty with some of our friends, and yeah. I don't mean we just had like, some tragedy in our some tragedy, in our inner circle. and not just our inner circle here at StoryBrand, but in my broader circle. Yeah. you know, different yeah. friends, and the the word or the phrase right now that really is driving me is, I want to be a good friend. Mm. And and so that is, I've been thinking about that over and over. What does that look like yeah. in the midst I want to be of remembered when people, as a good yeah, friend. 20 years from now, when people have gone through this this period of time with me, I want them to look back and say, he was a good friend.
0: You know, it's interesting, and this may be controversial, and I, I hesitate to even say it, but that's never stopped me before. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> you know, I come out of church culture. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church and wrote Christian memoirs for a long time, and the word godly was always thrown around, mm-hmm. and it sort of uh, gathered a negative connotation to me over time, mm-hmm. and, and and it's it's for perfectly understandable reasons. Most people who I knew who used that word, or many, not most, but mm-hmm. many, were in fact not. Mm-hmm. It was a cover. Mm-hmm. And so they, they would use the word godly, but then they were cheating on their wives, they were sleeping yeah. with prostitutes, they were, you know, not even... A handful. We're talking about a number of them, and so I just thought I I really never want to be like that. And the two, the two guiding words, the core values, are very simple for me. They were to be good and to be true. Mm. And Mm so I've often said to people, I don't think anybody at my funeral will say he was a godly man. Mm. I hope they say he was good and he was true. And here's the reason: because if I am actually true. You would never understand me as godly, like it would never. <laughs> yeah. You know, like if I'm true about stuff that I'm struggling the with, the prophet and all that. Yeah, all that guys. Kind of go, "Well, he's so godly." No, you know, he's got some issues, but you know, he tells the truth. He's yeah, really yeah. good. Like he's yeah. trustworthy. He's not going to yeah. hurt you. But those are the only two. Mm. There's no identity crisis involved in that. Yeah, you can be good and true and not have any sort of identity crisis or put on a false face. Yeah. If you want to be known as godly, at some point you're going to have to start lying mm. because you're not.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, none of us are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're
0: not. Yeah, and and it's, it's just fascinating to me. And and but anyway, I love what Scott says. He says a lot more than that. We're we're picking one little aspect yeah. of what he says in this interview.
1: <laughs> we we're always listening to the interviews and going, how do we apply this? And this is the thing that jumped out was just this idea of. Do I live by my core values, even yeah. in, in the day to day, in work in particular, in the context of this podcast? Yeah. Um, and what are those? Do we take time to just stop and actually identify? And like I said, mine, truthfully, while yours, you have these two that have kind of held on to, I actually reevaluate on a they regular sort of change, basis. Yeah. And because at different times, I think there's different things that drive who I am and what I'm trying to accomplish in the world.
0: Yeah. I love it. Scott has written a book called From Management Mess to Leadership Success. There's 30 different challenges he goes through that we all need to understand and be able to overcome if we want to be good managers. It's a terrific conversation. Here's my sit-down with Scott Miller. Scott Miller, thanks for coming on. Don, my pleasure. I'm honored to be part of your your platform. Hey, everywhere I go, I ask people, you know, hey, what what information do you need? What content do you need? And in the top five every time is... I need somebody to help my people learn how to manage. I've got, and they'll literally point through the glass cubicle wall at some other guy, and they will say, "I just put that guy in that position, and I'm not ex- exactly sure how to tell him to manage. I do it kind of intuitively." And you are the guy. You got. A, you have a book called "Management Mess to Leadership Success: Thirty Challenges to Become a Leader You Would Actually Follow," which is a great title. And I just want to. I want to give all our listeners a crash course on management. And you've got some breakdown, how to lead yourself, how to lead others, how to actually get results. And we're going to go through that. But you're sitting down with somebody, they just got a job as a manager because they performed really well in their past job. They've never managed people before. Day three, they realized they don't know how to do this.
2: There's this whole other skill set. What do you tell them? How do you even start? Well, I think in, in your intro, therein lies the problem, right? Is I think too often we promote leaders from being highly effective individual producers, right? They were the best salesperson, the top nurse, the best digital designer. And oftentimes it's counterintuitive. What makes the great individual producer rarely, in fact, on makes a great leader Mm. because often those of us who are excelling in our own fields, we're doing so out of a sense of personal pride, limelight, competition, significance. We like to win. Those aren't bad things. Those are great things. That's what makes high producing salespeople. So I think the first step is to before you promote the person before the third day, heck, before the first day is be very honest, be very forthright, be transparent around what does leadership really mean? Because I think too many people are lured into leadership and not led, meaning people come into leadership because they want a bigger paycheck or they want the corner office or the title. What they really don't understand is leadership is tough. It's unrewarding. It's unrelenting. It pays off long term, but it takes a complete shift in your mindset. What, what are you looking for when, you know, let's say I've got a team of 10 people, one of them is
0: clearly outperforming everybody else. And I agree with you. And, and also, a, a lot of times, especially like on a development team where you're dealing with a bunch of coders, and you take one of your your prize coders, you say, I want you to manage the team. Well, now you've, you've taken them out of what they were doing to produce for the company. They were the prize coder. And now you've asked them to manage. They don't know how to do that. And they could easily ruin the whole thing. So my question to you is, as I'm looking around my company, I need somebody to lead this development team. What am I looking for? Am I looking in a different department? And am am I looking for certain skill sets? Am I looking for, what am I looking for to say, this person is a great coder, they may not be necessarily a good leader. What am I looking for as I look around my company for the person who could manage a team?
2: Yeah, great question. I think it's less uh, replicating the technical skill set. I can lead coders and I have no clue how to code.
1: I think you're looking
2: for humility. You're Mm. looking for collaboration skills. You're looking for good listening skills. People who don't have to be the smartest person in the room. Do they have a a gravitational sense of pulling people together, being able to diffuse conflict, allowing for robust conversations? Can they allow other people to be smart and lift up ideas? You're looking for people really who have a strong sense of self-confidence, but don't need to be the genius in the room. They want to be the genius maker. And so I don't think you ever should first go to the best performer in that department. Again, I, I could probably lead... I'm being arrogant here, but I probably could lead neuroscientist. I know nothing about neurology, but I have a good sense for how to build winning teams in terms of collaboration, working together, checking your ego. So I think you're looking for high EQ skills, always over technical competency. That is such great
0: advice. You've actually just described our COO. Everything that you said, as you said it, checked a box, and he's done an amazing job leading this company. Okay, for practical skills, I want to get into the three parts of your book. The first is lead yourself. And you've got a bunch of, you know, probably eight different characteristics of what you need to do to lead yourself. And I think it's worth a cursory understanding just for a takeaway for our audience. The first you've already mentioned is that we need to be humble. And will you just define from your perspective what demonstrating humility looks like? Sure.
2: I think, again, it's a bit counterintuitive. You know, I used to think that humble leaders were quiet, shy, retiring, but it's not true you know humility is born out of confidence confident people are humble people don't confuse confidence with arrogance you know humble people are more concerned with what is right than being right again they don't have to be the genius in the room there used to be a kind of a joke i you know i've served as the chief marketing officer for franklin covey for almost a decade and there was a joke in the room where best idea wins
1: hmm.
2: as long as it's scott's And I wrote this book around all my own messes because although it was a joke, there was probably some truth in it. I was not a humble leader. I Mm -hmm. was a, I was more of a charismatic leader. And you know, I liked to be the smartest person in the room. And the more secure I became, I realized my job isn't to be the genius. My job is to be the genius maker. My job is to attract and retain the smartest talent, people who are smarter than me. And I need to summon the maturity in the humility not to always be the smartest person. As you say that, I think about uh, like an NBA
0: basketball coach. I mean, you put an NBA basketball coach on the floor and they're the worst player on the floor. So their job is actually to find the talent and to shepherd that talent. And maybe we need a little bit of that. The next one, I think this is interesting, is to think abundantly. As we learn to lead ourselves,
2: think abundantly. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So in Dr. Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, which has sold 30 million copies, it's in its 30th year. It's amazing, right? It's a seminal book. He's been passed now for seven years, and his book still sells about 6,000 copies a week. He, he defines this concept about having a scarce mindset or an abundance mindset, you know, a scarcity mentality or an abundance mentality. And it's really about defining how much is enough. You know, we'll never have enough. Until we have defined how much is enough: fame, power, influence, paperclips, money in the bank, whatever it is. So I think leaders who move from mess to success can genuinely put a lot of their own needs aside. And they don't have to take the limelight. You know, if you're like me, I'm a fairly charismatic person of a big personality. I I have a pretty big wingspan, metaphorically. It has historically been hard for people to shine under me because I take or get just naturally a lot of the credit. I have to intentionally make sure that I am promoting and talking about the, the competencies of my team up to the CEO. It's great leaders believe there is enough to go around. They don't have to first get their promotion or their credit and then if some's left, great for you. Now, that doesn't mean they're naive, right? Because everybody has a mortgage to pay. Everyone wants to secure their job. Right. But there's this delicate balance of making sure your needs are met, never at the expense of your team, because your team will sniff that out in a moment's notice. You've got about eight
0: characteristics here that that we need to understand in order to lead ourselves well. I'm going to skip around a little bit. If you want to read the book, you definitely you want to do that. But you've got some interesting ones. One is carry your own weather explain to me what you mean by carry your own weather.
2: Yeah, it's exactly right. Again, another concept popularized by Dr. Covey, it's really about proactive people choose their response Hmm. based on their values, not based on other people or circumstances. So every one of us has the person in the office that as soon as they open their mouth, we just kind of get our dander up, right? They always say that thing in the meeting or that division or whatever it is. All of us have these forces in our life triggers that triggers that elicit an immediate response. And if you're like me, my knee jerk reaction is usually regretted about a day later when someone calls me and tells me I looked like an imbecile. So instead of reacting to people who are your triggers, proactive people carry their own weather, right? When the boss walks in the office and walks past your desk and slams their door and you think you're getting fired, you never give thought that it might be they had a fight with their teenage daughter that day, right? You know your value. You know your, your values. You're confident in your contribution. Your, your value is implicit in your own mind. You don't immediately knee-jerk your reaction. I tell a lot of people, some of the things that I'll say is, if someone says something to me that is a little bit incendiary or is kind of got my dander up, I'm increasingly employing this phrase. You know, I want a few minutes to think about that because I want my response today to be the same I wished it was tomorrow. So, you know what? I might need an hour. <laughs> That's fantastic. And people look at me like I'm a little bit crazy, but you know what? I'm going to be called down to HR less yeah. because I said something that felt good in the moment but was disrespectful, was eviscerating, or just quite frankly, wasn't kind. We deal a
0: lot with entrepreneurs. We deal a lot with the, the person who is running the small business sub $5 million. And as I interact with um, leader after leader, there's something that leaders who have high turnover seem to have in common. That is, leaders who are constantly replacing even their top talent, and it's this: they're they're moody and they wear their emotions on their sleeves. In other words, they're they're causing a storm all the time, and they just can't live in that environment for very long. I've noticed it over and over and over.
2: Uh, it's not unique, you know, to env- in entrepreneurial environments. I think. I think you're going to see in the coming decades and certainly coming, coming years, a leadership competency that's going to be a number one competency is emotional maturity. You know, all the books right. being written about your EQ and, and, and do you have the, do you have the deliberation, the maturity not to knee jerk react and, 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 and lash out the first things that's on your mind that you really have the, the patience and the, the reservedness, if you will, to not just say what you're thinking. I think too many of us are impulsive that way, and you can't take it back. And people, as you know, they don't quit their jobs. All the science shows, they quit their boss wow. or they quit their
0: culture. Yeah. How, how do you stay grounded? I mean, how did you, and I know you probably learned a lot from Covey, how did you, did you sit down and decide what your values are and decide how you're going? Was there a process that, that helped you decide how you were going to respond?
2: I am so glad you asked that question. You know, Dr. Covey talked a lot about personal mission statements. And although I value those, that that particular concept was never right for me. Our other co-founder, Hiram Smith, who of course, is the inventor of the Franklin planning process and the Franklin planner, who at one point, that would sell, you know, forty million planners a year. He talked about knowing your values. And I heard him give a speech twenty years ago. And I went home and I wrote out my values. and I ranked them in high order. And I created, An acronym, Philpal, P-H-I-L-P-A-L. P P was for purpose, health, integrity, loyalty, positivity, abundance, and learning. Hmm. Those were my seven values. I wrote them down. I I thought about them a lot. I ranked them in hierarchical order. And if someone were to ask my values today or next week, they would be the same. I wouldn't make them up what sounded convenient in the meeting. I'm very clear on my values. And sometimes, you know, they work against me. Like one of my top four values is loyalty. I'm sometimes too loyal to hmm. products, businesses, or people, but, but it's, but it is such a strong value that I'm willing to get burned on it because over time it's worked well. My, my first is purpose, right? I mean, I'm, I'm a, I'm a practicing member of my faith. I'm a father of three boys. I'm raising them very assuredly in the faith that I believe in. And so my purpose on earth, uh, I believe now is to be a father. So before I will stay at the office past six o'clock and miss my boy's tennis game, My number one value is purpose. So I'm out and I'll figure out how to make the CEO happy at 10 at night. But that's the number one thing. So I I think too often we talk about values, but like me 20 years ago, I hadn't paid the price to go home and over the course of a couple of days, really write out what's my purpose? What's my reputation? Why am I here? What do I value? And I wrote them for me, not for anybody else. I, I don't care if you like my first value or fifth value but I do know my values. And if you invite me on two years from now, I'll tell you the same seven things.
0: You know, you've got several of these characteristics of how to lead yourself. Uh, Another one is inspire trust. Another one is model work-life balance. It seems like a lot of this is flowing out of your values. It is. I hope so. Well, after we lead ourselves, we need to learn to lead others. And you've got several characteristics here. Place the right people in the right place, or the right roles, make time for relationships, check your paradigms, lead difficult conversations, on and on. I want to go back, though, to make time for relationships. I would imagine that you as a content creator and a, and, and really an executive coach, you're dealing with a lot of high D on the disc, uh, a lot of Enneagram 8s, a lot of Enneagram 3s, and relationships for those kinds of folks tend to be transactional. What do you do when you have a leader who has trouble with relationships where they can't figure out the algorithm of profit. In other words, just to sit and go deep for no other reason than it's two human beings sharing uh, stories of their humanity. Is that important? And if so, what do you say
2: to somebody who's just not, they're just not wired that way completely? Well, this is my sweet spot because I'm so bad at it. <laughs> and it's one of the messes I write about in the book. You know, one of Dr. Covey's famous quotes is with people, slow is fast and fast is slow. Wow. That's so wise. So when you, when you, when you look at that, I tend to be a very efficient, productive person. I like checklists. I like to get things done. I'm the kind of guy who's at home Depot at five 50 in the morning, waiting for the doors to open to buy my marigolds, (laughs) and they're planted, done, watered, ready to go by 7am. That's fine when you're planting marigolds or when you're raking the yard, taking the garbage out. But my problem is I tend to be too efficiency-minded in relationships. That's right. You know, an efficiency mindset works great with systems, structures, and processes. But you need to be able to move your paradigm to become effectiveness mindset with people.
0: How do you measure effectiveness when you're just getting to know somebody and having casual lunches and those kinds of things? But or do you even
2: measure? It? That's that's not the point. Well, I, I'd answer that this way. Is first you have to have a mindset shift. You have to decide and convince yourself that you do value relationships. Cause if you don't, you'll be a fraud and people will see it and you'll you know, look manipulative. So one is you have to come to the wisdom that you do value people, not what they can just do for you, but they're just their whole person innateness. And once you come to that, then you might have to change some behaviors. I've learned some great things. Like I now Will turn my phone over and place it upside down on the desk when someone comes in. So I'm not tempted to look at them. I heard some and it's techniquey, but it's, you know, it's a behavior change for me. I once heard a story about a boss who intentionally took off her glasses, put them on the table, and closed her laptop when someone came in so that she would demonstrate to them she was invested in them, but it also was a good trigger for her not to get distracted. So if if you want to build a culture. Where people choose to stay, where they choose to give you their all, leaders understand that they are the linchpin in their culture. Leaders define the culture in their own behavior. And if you think about the math, we spend more hours with our business professionals, our colleagues, yeah. than we do awake with our family and friends. That's especially amazing. in America. Yeah. So when you think about the math then you want to like who you work with and your people want to like you as a leader. I would encourage people to I would encourage leaders. Don't separate yourself from your people. Don't try to be the smartest person in the room. Don't try to be perfect. Own your own your messes. Cause you know what? Everyone sees them. The receptionist sees them. Your wife sees them. Your husband, your employees, they talk about them and the more vulnerable you can be to not differentiate yourself or to put a chasm between you. People want to relate to their leader. So as it relates to relationships, take the time. It's always been a struggle for me. I like to move through meetings fast. And as I have matured, Don, and I hate to admit it, probably more like in my early 50s, I'm 51. This really started to understand that everybody in your office has a challenge. Not everyone's marriage is as good as they're portraying it. You know, some people have bills they can't pay. Remember the time when we used to put, you know, $2 of gas in your car on Thursday morning because payday was on Friday, (laughs) or there's a reason why the receptionist or the mail clerk is eating popcorn for lunch on, on, on Thursday. It's not because they like popcorn. It's because payday is tomorrow. (laughs) So I think as leaders begin to move up as the entrepreneur leader or in the C-suite, remind yourself that everybody still has challenges. They want to, you want them to choose to work there. Doesn't mean they're going to like you all the time. Ideally, they would do respect to you, but slow down. With people, slow is fast, and fast is slow.
1: We'll be right back with the rest of our interview with Scott Miller in just a moment. Hey, it's JJ here, and I wanted to let you know about something we have coming up that's very cool. We have a live workshop coming up September 22nd through the 24th, and if you register by this Thursday, August 22nd, we are going to give everybody who does a free coaching call. When you leave the live workshop, you can send the sales funnel and the website and your one-liner that you worked on in the room to a coach, and they're going to be able to go over it with you. So register for the live workshop by August 22nd and get a free coaching call. Just go to storybrand.com to register, and we'll see you there.
0: You've got so much meat in this book, but there are a couple of things that I want to hit because I think our listeners are, are gonna really learn from it. One is when we're leading others, learn to lead difficult conversations. And I'm really curious, we can all use this. We're sitting down. Somebody has messed up or we've made a mistake or whatever. It is a difficult
2: conversation.
0: How do you go into a difficult
2: conversation and lead it well? Yeah, I'm extremely passionate about this. I think way too many leaders abdicate this responsibility. You don't deserve to be in a leadership position if you're not willing to move outside of your own comfort zone, and to summon the courage to discuss the undiscussables. you know i've I, I've had some you know major messes in my leadership career. Nothing illegal or immoral, but you know i have I have certainly forced some people to quit because of my style. and I wrote a book about it, right? It's quite horrifying, but i but I'm contrite and i'm and I'm vulnerable enough to talk about one of my talents, Don, inevitably when someone you know reaches out to me on LinkedIn or passes me in an airport what inevitably what they say to me is, Scott, you were the one person in my entire career that had the courage to talk to me about fill in the blank, right? Whatever it was, because I think it is the biggest gift that any leader can give their employees. And it might be about their productivity, their collaboration skills. It might be about their personal hygiene. And some people laugh, but I've had conversations about people's personal hygiene. And I'm not delighted about talking about that i didn't wake up one morning courageous i practice it i got it wrong i made mistakes but here's a good example and again you have to have the mindset that you really care about that person to move outside of both of your comfort zones i will say something like this hey drew i want you to know that my intent is for you to have a great career here. And I have your back. I, I, I can see great opportunity here. So a couple of things that are happening that are tripping you up. Now, I might not say this exactly right. I might not use the right words. So would you pre-forgive me on some of the words I'm going to use? I might ask for a do-over, but my intent is to help you. And by the way, what we discuss in here stays in here. I've noticed, Drew, that kind of like me, I think you might be breaking through your deodorant. Occasionally, you know, we build up a tolerance (laughs) and sometimes, you know, but I mean, you get the point, right? I'm using that as a bit of an absurd example, but it's not so absurd. I mean, the, the
0: alternative that almost all of us would do is to not say anything. And then that person's career gets hurt.
2: And have other people gossip about it and talk about right. it and bring it to you. But you know what? I mean, just yesterday, one of my colleagues at a, at a business meeting at a restaurant, I came out of the restroom, and the two other significant outside partners were standing there, and I had forgotten to zip up my zipper. <laughs> and my colleague to me, a, a junior guy, said to me very silently, Scott, zip up your zipper. And you know what? What a gift. A yeah, absolutely. I wasn't embarrassed, but I mean— He saved me the embarrassment. You know what? embarrassment? He had my best interest at heart. So back to the point is I think too often leaders pull the chicken switch. And no one wants to talk to people about their antiperspirant or about their dress or their punctuality or how they never take responsibility for their mistakes. But you owe it to the person. You owe it to your company to discuss those things because you could be that one transition figure in their career where before them, all their bosses were cowards. But you had the courage to sit down in a respectful way. And by the way, not every culture allows us, right? There are some cultures that are more litigious or that maybe they have a history where they were, you know, someone crossed the line with them. So you have to know your audience, right? Sometimes it might be best outsourced to HR. Nine times out of 10, close the door, sit them down, tell them that you have their best interest in mind, that you see a great career for them. You might get it wrong but you want to talk to them about a sensitive topic and then have a conversation. You know what? Don't sit across the table. Pull up your chair beside them. Make yourself an equal. We're just two people having a conversation. I'm sure once in a while my breath smells bad too. Thank goodness my wife tells me every three minutes it smells bad. So (laughs) she gives me a mint. You know what? We're all just people, right? Yeah. I I love that. (laughs) You know, I I was really convicted
0: a couple of years ago well, I can't remember wh- what thought leader it was who said, you know, the real conversation you need to have with somebody is the one that you're having about them with somebody else. And I, and I just realized, wow, I'm actually going to a friend or my wife and saying the thing because I'm too chicken to actually sit down with that person and say, hey, can we talk about something?
2: What you just said is the most important part of this interview because the biggest cancer in every organization is the gossip. And, and we're kind of raised for it to be part of our normal conversation. But, but again, at Franklin Covey, we have this concept that is called being loyal to the absent and that principled leaders, leaders who truly want to be the culture carrier of their organization, never speak about someone differently when they are physically present in front of them or when they are absent. Meaning you retain the trust of those who are present. When you speak respectfully about those who are absent, because if I know if you're going to trash Don, you're going to trash me as well, too. So leaders need to be the transition figure to never speak about or tolerate anybody else disparaging someone. And there's ways to do it without shaming someone, right? Someone can, in a meeting, say, yeah, you know what, Tina over in accounting, she just passes the buck and she never actually does her work. And she all, you know you know what, I would say, you know what, I'll bet Tina would be, I'd have her feelings hurt if she heard that. And I'm sure that isn't your intention. So I would advise you, if you found some issues where Tina could improve, go talk to her about it personally, and I'm going to suspend judgment until I've seen the same in Tina, and if I ever do, I'll talk to her about it in front of her as well. You will eliminate the gossip on your team in that one minute. I love that. And nothing builds trust faster. It's true, and nothing nothing destroys trust faster. I know someone in our own company, very competent person, and this person consistently speaks disparaging about other people. And it's kind of funny when it's about them, but it's not so funny when you realize I am sure they do the same thing about me. And when I was with this person yesterday, looking at them, thinking, I can only imagine what it is you say about me when I'm not around. Mm -hmm. And that starts and it ends with the leader, leader of the call center, leader of accounting or leader of the company. Well, after we learn to lead others, Scott, it's
0: obvious why you've you've had such a success. I mean, you're just speaking. You know what's really funny about guys like you? You're speaking 2,000-year-old wisdom that has never changed. so true. true. Don't expose me. This is all original. (laughs) Somebody asked me where I got my story ideas, and I said, I hate to tell you this, but it's Aristotle. (laughs) He wrote it 2,000 years ago. Uh, Anyway, so yeah, in terms of uh, leading others, uh, there's so much. Lead difficult conversations. Talk straight. Balance courage and consideration. Show loyalty. Make it safe to tell the truth. Right wrongs. Man, we could go on about that. We were just talking about uh, something in uh, a meeting yesterday about sales training, just training our people about how uh, important it is, how important reconciliation is. Like if we've if we've let a customer down, it's not okay to just give them a refund. Or whatever. We've broken trust in a relationship and that trust has to be reconciled and a refund doesn't automatically mean reconciliation. We were talking about this actually in the context of customer service. And if if you've broken a customer's trust, you can say, well, I'll give you a refund and, and maybe they're satisfied. But to be able to call them a week later and say, hey, I know we gave you a refund, but I also feel like we broke your trust and I want to apologize to you for that. And just say, you are one of the places where we learn not to do that again. Will you forgive me and my company for causing you? I bet you the average person has never gotten a call from a company to actually reconcile a relationship over something, you know, that they might even consider more or less minor. I'm curious about what you mean when you say right wrongs, and
2: is is reconciliation a part of that? Writing wrongs is more than just apologizing. It's about making restitution, just mm. what you said. Some of us, when we apologize, our natural instinct is to defend ourselves, rationalize, minimize, or even ignore it. The only apology is the excuse free apology, where if you're like me, I'm tempted to say, you know what, I'm sorry. But, you know, that meeting was so intense and, you know, and, and, and Tiffany said the same thing she says every meeting. No, 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 that's not an apology yeah. I, or I'm sorry that I spoke to you in a way that may have offended you, but I was really, no, that's not an apology. No, buts. The only apology is I am sorry that I offended you. I was wrong. It was inconsiderate and unacceptable. And I apologize and I intend not to do that again. So the next time anybody is tempted to make an apology with any attachment, disclaimer, we're doing that to protect our own ego, our own, you know, self-esteem or self-worth. Practice making excuse-free apologies. And then to your point, have you made restitution? The next sentence might be beyond promising not to do it again. Is there something specific I could do to make it up to you? Hmm. Now, that seems a little bit maybe demonstrative in the workplace, but you know what? No one's ever said that to me. If they did, I probably would say, no, but thank you for saying that. That really was validating, and I so appreciate that. You know, nothing diffuses tension faster than an excuse free apology. I've had relationships where either I've been wronged or I've wronged someone else. And weeks and months or years went by where we didn't speak to each other or we ignored each other or tolerated, and then one of us summoned the maturity—probably not me—to sit down and say, "You know what? Can we talk? How crazy is it?" And then we, whatever the conversation is, and and then they apologize, and then I apologize, and then we become friends again. And that took three years. You know what? Call up your brother, call up your stepsister, apologize that you brought the wrong turkey to Thanksgiving or that you had had too many glasses of wine at Christmas dinner. Just apologize. Make things right. And same with your clients. Take responsibility. We've just forgotten how to do that, especially in an age where I, I think there
0: are people in leadership who really see apologies as as weakness. weakness. Yeah. Totally,
2: and I think it starts in the in the political realm too is rarely do you see someone that comes out and says and just tells the truth. You know, I think people are very forgiving. I think the American public is m- increasingly more forgiving. Sadly, also I think they're, you know, tolerant of a lot more than they should be. Right. But But to your point, I think it starts in the political realm of just owning it, taking responsibility. And unfortunately, we see the opposite of just this vitriolic blame of everybody else and no ownership. And I think it starts at the top, the very top.
0: Okay, I want to hit one part of getting results, and, and you've got a bunch of them here. The, the book is just chock full of wisdom. Uh, but you and I kind of geek out on this because we've talked before, but creating a vision. And and you it know, kind of goes back to the beginning a little bit, but how, how do, what's your method for creating an actual vision for an organization and
2: where it can go? You know, I go a, different, a couple different places with this. Uh, in the book, I talk a lot about having vision for your own life, as well as having vision for your organization. It is not enough for a leader who may or may not be charismatic or a great speaker to paint a big vision. Usually leaders have vision because they either started the company or, you know, had a progressive idea for how to change or innovate or keep innovating their company. But I think too often people fall into the trap of, well, my job is done. I've, I've got a great vision. I've communicated at the town hall. I've got a poster in the lobby and now metaphorically washing my hands. Now go to the job. Well, that's, that's, that's idiotic, right? Is right. I think too frequently leaders think that creating vision is talking about the vision. Now you've got to repeat it. You've got to be willing to change your mind. In fact, I think, I think this, the stats show that 93% of companies that were successful in achieving their strategy actually ended up with what, Clayton Christensen calls the emergent strategy, not their original deliberate strategy, that they achieved success with a new strategy that was different than their original one that they created the vision for. They've got to be nimble and they've got to be agile enough to, you know, go in the right direction. But creating vision also means that you roll up your sleeves and you're willing to also get it done, that you're willing to sit down with Scott and say, so Scott, Here's the vision for the organization. Here's how I see product innovation or sales or accounting or operations supporting this. Let's talk about the new behaviors that we need to see out of you and your team member. Because to accomplish something new and bold, people have to either learn something new or do something different. So great leaders translate vision into actual behaviors. And they start with themselves. So when they give the speech and they say, you know what, we're going to increase customer retention by 7% this fiscal year. And as the sales leader, I am going to go on 37 client visits, one every seven days. Last year, I did 12. You get the point, right? That you start with yourself. I am going to learn something new or do something different. I have a great story of how About five years ago, we were shipping out about 7,000 kits to our clients, to our customers. And these kits was a new program guidebook and a new book. And the CFO of our company came down, rolled up his shirt sleeves, took off his tie, and stood side by side in the warehouse for three hours packing the boxes. Or whatever the the leader said. Not, Not because he wanted to look good, but because he's that kind of leader that's willing to get in the trenches. Not every day his job is not in the warehouse packing boxes. But I think sometimes leaders forget and separate themselves either intentionally or unintentionally from helping the vision come to life. And I also tell in my keynote speeches about leaders don't just create a vision for their organization. They have a vision for their own life. They really, they tell themselves their own stories. I learned this from Viola Davis in an interview and from a guy named Eric Barker, who wrote an amazing book called Barking Up the Wrong Tree. It's a yeah. book that dispels a lot of, you know, success stories in life. And he talks about the importance of kind of just knowing your own story. What was told to you by your parents, your principal, your neighbors, your teacher? What was a lie about you? What was true? And at some point in your life, you just confront them and you, you own your story and you create a vision for your life. You don't don't just do what your parents thought you should do or your SAT score your your Myers Briggs says yeah. are your strengths that you really intentionally create your life.
0: Yeah. That's beautiful. Scott Miller everybody, the book is called Management Mess to Leadership Success 30 Challenges to Become the Leader You Would Follow. Scott, you have a book coming out in October also.
2: Can you tell us about it? I do. So, I actually have a whole series of books in the mess to success genre. Yeah. My next book is going to be Marketing Mess to Brand Success. I have a job mess to career success. There's, there's a whole mess of success series over the next five years being developed. But my, by the book coming out in October that I've co-written with Franklin Covey's chief people officer and one of our senior consultants is called Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, The Six Critical Practices for Leading a Team. It's a very um, authentic, kind of raw look at you know how hard it is to make that transition from individual producer to first-line, first-level leader. And we give you some great, very practical examples on what are six things that leaders need to do to actually create a high-performance team. And it can be used at the C-suite or at the front line. Because sometimes, to quote one of our founders, to know and not to do is not to know. So at every level of our career, we can be reminded of, you know, of great solid things that that leaders do to create high performing teams. I love it, Scott. Thanks for the honor of your time. My pleasure, Don.
0: He's really good, isn't he? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a reason that company succeeds. Yeah, they, they sort of gather wisdom, yeah.
1: and then share it. How with the cool world. that they're
0: coming to StoryBrand Workshop!
1: I know, so excited.
0: Yeah, I love helping companies like that. I'm actually hoping to get dinner or lunch with uh, with their guys while they're here. Me too, please. <laughs> so, well, I have a feeling they wanted they would rather meet with you. <laughs> uh, another terrific episode, another terrific conversation. Hopefully, that was helpful to you. Music from this episode is by Andrew Bell. You can find his music on Spotify. Make sure to give Andrew a listen. I think he's out on tour now, Jason. Yeah,
1: we're going next week.
0: Are we really? Yep. Wait, uh, the whole staff. I remember we bought yep. tickets. We bought them like six months ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So we. Okay, awesome. So he's out on tour now. You want to go here, Andrew? Thanks, as always, for listening to the Building a Story Brand podcast, where we believe if you confuse, you'll lose. Noise is the enemy, and creating a clear message is the best way to grow your business.